Good evening, Scott. Good afternoon, buddy. It has been a bit, hasn't it? Um, a bit of what, buddy? It's been a, a little bit since we've been here talking about this subject. Yeah. Yeah. What subject? The Trinity. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. See? That's what I'm saying. It's been a while. It's been a while. Been... If you just said that. You know, sorry. You know, I guess because it's been a bit, what, I, I, could, I couldn't get my thoughts together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the best I can remember, and based on the last podcast, I went back and I looked it over. We stopped talking about um, the Trinity. equality of the father and the son. That was what we stopped on right there. Yeah. And tonight... We are going to look at references in scripture in the Old and the New Testaments where Jesus is directly attributed deity. So when you add up these references, you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 references that directly attribute deity to Jesus. Mm. That's on top of all the references we've already looked about right. or looked at that deal with the subjects of, you know, him being worshiped, him receiving equality with God in some way yep. or stating it for himself. And so now we're going to move on and talk about some direct references. So first yes. we're going to start naturally in the old Testament. Rock on. And so Isaiah nine, six, one of my favorite verses in the old Testament, mm. uh, most certainly my favorite verse in the book of Isaiah. It's a Christmas verse and I can't help but read this verse without thinking of uh, Handel's Messiah. Yes. Like every time I read this verse, but I'm not going to sing it for you tonight because um, I'm not really good at that. But in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, the reference that we're looking at today is most obvious, the mighty God. Mm. So we know that this is referring to Jesus and not the Father. To point out the obvious, it says, unto us a child is born. Yep. The Son is given. This is the Son, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, promised in Isaiah seven fourteen earlier. Like this is clearly a reference to the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And it says, he shall be called... Because he is the mighty God. Right. Now, if you want to know the Hebrew, it's El Gibor. And this is similar in construction to all the other titles that we find of God in the Old Testament, like El Sadiq, which yep. means God the righteous. Uh, El Emet, God the faithful or God the true. El Shaddai, yep. uh, God Almighty or yep. God the all-sufficient one. There's a song there someplace. Yeah, there are a lot of songs there. That's I don't know right. about El Sadiq and El Ahmed. I don't know if I've ever heard any songs with that anyways, one, but yeah. El Shaddai, yeah. El Shaddai. But anyways, El Gibor fits in that same pattern, so there's no reason to differentiate this title from the, all the loftiness that pertains to the Father. So the mm. same worship, the same glory, same deity that belongs to the Father also belongs to his Son. Jesus is El Gibor. Also in this same verse, it says he is everlasting Father. And Michael Brown, a Messianic Jewish scholar, has pointed out that another way you can translate this, which is equally valid, is Father of Eternity. 
Mm. And the Hebrew, he says, is idiomatic. Uh, it's an expression which means eternity belongs to him. So father of something, to be father of carpentry, father of masonry, the, to be the father of something is to have that thing for oneself, to be like the master of it. And so he is master of eternity. And of course, this mm. goes right along with all the stuff we have in Revelation about Jesus being the first and the last, right. the Alpha and the Omega. So Jesus is father of eternity. This doesn't mean that he's the father, some oneness Pentecostals. And I want to clearly differentiate what we're talking about from oneness Pentecostalism. Oneness Pentecostalism teaches modalism. Patrick. Patrick, if you haven't seen that video, uh, Lutheran satire online awesome video on the subject, mm. but modalism uh, is the idea that you have one God, three masks or three aspects of God, father, son, Holy spirit. Um, but they would say God's only one person while scripture clearly teaches that God is three persons as confusing as that mm. is, it's what's taught. Right. Um, and so when it says father of eternity, this isn't saying he's the father. Okay. Jesus is the father of himself. Mm. He's the father of eternity. Okay. So here it's not saying Jesus is the father in the father, son, Holy spirit formula, Jesus is the son, but being father of eternity again, as Michael Brown points out is a Hebrew expression, mm -hmm. which denotes the fact that Jesus is eternal. So he's not just mighty God in a functional sense. Like he's like a hero, you right. know, really strong. And we might use the term God in reference to him. The following clause everlasting father clearly shows that we're talking about an eternal being here. And so he is God in the fullest sense of the term. Uh, in Malachi 3.1, let's turn there also in the Old Testament. This one's really neat, too, because it ties into the um, angel of the Lord doctrine that I think every Christian ought to know. I mean, if someone was to challenge you and say, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? You might be able to point out some prophecies about Jesus when he becomes incarnate. Right. Uh, but do you have any places where Jesus actually makes a personal appearance? Well, if you understand yes. the angel of the Lord doctrine right. all over the place, he's all over. And so Malachi 3.1 makes a reference to Jesus as the angel of the Lord, but it shows that the angel of the Lord is no created angel, but God in the flesh uh, or not. Sorry, God in the flesh in the New Testament. Jesus is God in the flesh, but in the Old Testament, God um, manifesting himself on earth through his son. So God is... Um, he is sending his son to represent him, to speak to people like Gideon or speak to sure. Manoah. Um, but this person, while sent from God, is one with God. Right. And so we see the name Jehovah applied to the angel of the Lord, even though angel of the Lord means messenger of Jehovah. Right. He's messenger of Jehovah and Jehovah. So how do you put those two concepts together? Well, mm. the Trinity makes perfect sense of it. Yep. And so in Malachi 3.1, this prophecy says as follows, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Notice that his yeah. temple, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the messenger of the covenant. So that identifies who this Lord is. The Lord is the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come saith the Lord of hosts. So we have the Lord Yahweh saying, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. So Jehovah is the one who's coming. John the Baptist is the one preparing his way. The New Testament fills us in on all the details. And the Lord, when he is revealed, 
Okay. He shall suddenly come to his temp temple, even the messenger of the covenant. The word messenger in Hebrew is also translatable as angel. Right. And so the messenger of the covenant, who is the messenger of the covenant, not a messenger of a covenant, the messenger, who is Jesus. the messenger. And this is, it says the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Yeah. So if you understand the historical backdrop of Malachi and you go back to the book of Exodus, when the Lord is in the wilderness at Mount Sinai and he's saying, I'm going to send you into Canaan. Um, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. He says, my angel shall go before you. And, and in him is my name. Yeah. Uh, my name being Jehovah. This, this is a clear reference that this person that is called angel has the name of Jehovah. And so is Jehovah has all those attributes that pertain to Jehovah God, the true God. And we see the angel of the Lord, that same angel appearing many times. It's the same angel that was in the burning bush. Yep. It's the angel that was in the pillar of fire. Yep. This is the one who appeared, as I already said, to Gideon and Manoah and Joshua before the battle of Jericho. And um, Moses. And, yeah, and, and Moses um, and in the tabernacle. Uh, and yes, thank you, Balaam. So all these references that yep. we just threw out there for you to fact check, if you will. Um, those are references to this messenger of the covenant, uh, the angel of the covenant. But notice the angel of the covenant is coming to his temple. So the angel's not inferior created being because Gabriel can't say this is my temple. Michael can't say this is my temple. I mean, Gabriel went to the temple and he spoke to Zachariah, but he would not make any lofty claims like that. Right. The temple is dedicated to the Lord. It's the Lord's house yep. in the old Testament, uh, before the, the Shekinah glory of God left, uh, before the exile, God dwelt in that temple. That's right. And so this is a promise that as they're, rebuilding the temple or, or already having rebuilt it. Okay. And in, in the recent past of the people who are receiving this prophecy from Malachi, he's saying this temple is going to be once again, filled with the glory of the Lord, the Lord who was here before he's not mm -hmm. here now. That was a conspicuous absence from right. the second temple. Absolutely. He's going to come to this temple. And of course, when he did, it was Jesus. When Jesus came into the temple and said, I am the light of the world, like he is filling the temple with his glory. Right. It's counterintuitive, yep. but he's God in the flesh. He's literally filling the temple with his glory. He performed miracles there. Yep. He preached there. He fulfilled prophecy there. His glory is being magnified there. And so Jesus is definitely the messenger of the covenant here. It's his temple. But to cement all this, the title, the Lord here, if you fact check me and I encourage you to. Every time in the Old Testament, the words Ha Adon, mm -hmm. okay, the Lord are used. They always refer to Jehovah. Mm. There's not a single example, okay? This is the one place where the term Jehovah isn't used in that construction of Ha Adon, mm. but it's the same, same expression. It's the same title, the huh. Lord. We're not talking about a Lord. We're talking about the Lord. And if it was left by itself, one might say, oh, well, technically the words could possibly apply to, you know, a human Lord or a powerful person or a sure. person of great respect. But this is the Lord coming to his temple. So that's clearly in this context enough for us to say with confidence that the Lord here is a reference to Jehovah. And so, again, the, the terms Ha Adon in the Old Testament are always used to refer to Jehovah. This would be the only exception, but it can't be an exception because the person here is coming to his temple. And we know that the temple belongs to Jehovah. It's his house. Okay, right. He commanded that it be built. And so 
Um, moving on to the New Testament now. So we've looked at a couple in the Old Testament. Uh, we could look at more. Um, these are just those that came to mind in my study. Um, I believe that there are probably several that I've left out, but um, we can only go through so many in one night. John 1, 1, the classic. This right. is the one that's become a battleground. I've even heard some evangelical scholars uh, or maybe not scholars, but people who are constantly talking with Jehovah's Witnesses and cults like saying, don't get into John 1, 1, right. steer clear of it. I've heard that advice often. Really? I strongly disagree with that. Um, the Why would they say that? The reason that they say it is because they'll say that they're prepared when it comes to this verse. They are prepared. Okay. They, they've been told, okay, quote this, quote that, use some Greek vocab that will, you know, mystify your audience. Sure. Like, ooh, these people who are knocking on my door know Greek. And so I've often heard it said that it's better to go to other places. I'm not saying you can't go to other places, sure. but avoiding this verse is an error. Yeah, because it is in the New Testament, perhaps the most explicit statement that yep. Jesus is God. Yep. And, and because of that, we shouldn't ignore it. Right. I mean, that would be crazy. Uh, that would be like just throwing out the single mm. greatest evidence for your argument because the people are going to vehemently try to rebuke that. Yeah. You know, they're going to respond to it. Well, just make sure that you know what they're going to say. You know, uh, be right. prepared, be, be prepared ready to. Your... That's right. Counter. Give a good answer. And, uh, but, but use this verse because it's a clear text teaching the deity of Christ. But in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John, as any human being would have difficulty in expressing the doctrine of the Trinity. Anybody would have a hard time right. saying the Trinity, um, because it's a very confusing thing as we've already established in the series. But with the language available to him, he does the best one possibly could. Mm. Um, so in the beginning, okay, so in NRK, Hain uh, Halagas, okay, yeah. in the beginning was the word. Yeah. Now, when it says in the beginning, this doesn't say um, in the beginning he came to be, in the beginning he became, it says in the beginning he was. So when we talk about creation, this is pushing us back before time. I mean, how can you say before time? It's sort of an oxymoron. Yeah. Human language doesn't give us the words to express that because we think in terms of time. So the best way to express it would be that when time began, he already was. So mm -hmm. if, if we were to say he came to be, well, that would mean he's a product like us. Mm -hmm. Okay. He had a beginning, but if when the beginning takes place, he is already there, that would push him back into eternity. Absolutely. So that's the language being employed here. So whoever the word is, when John's readers are first reading this in the first century, okay, well, the word is clearly eternal here because he's already there in the beginning mm -hmm. and he was, he doesn't come to be. Well, then he's with God. Now, prostante on the Greek here, uh, it means he's basically to the face of the father. Uh, you can almost imagine them looking at each other and beholding each other's faces and basking in each other's love. Okay. So this, this phrase denotes intimate fellowship, not mm -hmm. being in the same room, but being in a close fellowship with one another. So this word is not a concept or a concept. It's not uh, abstract. The word is a person capable of loving mm -hmm. fellowship. Okay. So this word is already there. This word is not God. Okay. In, in the sense that the phrase is used in the second clause when it says prostantheon. Okay. It's not saying he was with himself. 
Okay, he's with one who is God. Okay, this would be the father. Sure. The third clause, though, answers the question that everybody's going to ask at this point. Okay, well, how can he be eternal? How can he be uncreated? How can he be with God in the very beginning and not be God? And it's almost like John being inspired by the Holy Spirit says, well, I'm glad you asked because the word was God. Now, a lot of people will point out that there's no definite article used. The reason is because God comes first in the clause here. In the English, it's the word was God, but in Greek, it would be and God was the word. Mm. Okay. Uh, The reason that we do it differently is because it doesn't flow quite as well. Okay. But if we were to do it literally, it's and God was the word. It's put up front. So that way it emphasizes his deity. Now, whenever you have, you know, a particular clause like this in Greek, the syntax uh, gives us a way of determining what is the uh, predicate nominative. Okay? okay. So what is the word? The word is God. Okay. But how are we going to determine in Greek, you know, which one it is? Um, God was the word word was God. And how are we going to differentiate in Greek? Um, so what they do in Greek is they leave the definite article off of the word God. So that way, everybody knows that the proper translation would be in the word was God. So, um, and God was the word would be how you would read it. If you were like opening up a Greek new Testament in front of you, okay. okay, You were literally translating it, but when you put it into English, it is the word was God because the definite article is missing from God. Now, People will take that and they'll say, okay, well, because there's no definite article, it should be translated a God. There's a different reason why he doesn't have the definite article. Mm. The, the reason he leaves it out is because he's trying to express oneness of essence with the father, but yet he is not the father. Mm-hmm. If he was to have the definite article here, it wouldn't make any sense. It would say the word was with God and the word was that same person. And we know that we're not saying that Jesus was with the father and was the father. Okay. If you had the definite article, you would have modalism here. Okay. And it wouldn't make any sense. Right. Okay. Because you'd have two persons present at the beginning. Yes. With each other. But yet in the last clause, it'd be saying, well, that actually wasn't. There's just one person. It would be a contradiction, really. You'd have two persons in the second clause and then one person in the third. Yeah. So... John's more logical than that. The Trinity is more logical than that. So to be very nuanced, the definite article is left out for syntactical or grammatical reasons. And it highlights the quality of Jesus having a a divine nature. So when it says Jesus is God or the word was God, it's saying that everything that the father had, the father who's referred to as God in the second clause, everything that he has, the word has. So this explains why the word was able to be with him, why the word is able to be with him for all eternity. Mm. He couldn't be with him unless he himself was an eternal being. Right. And so this goes back to the idea of Jesus being the son in verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. So the reason that the word is God and shares all of the divine attributes of the father is because the word is the father's son. The word is God's son. And so 
it can get really it can get really confusing okay when one dives into the original language and some of what i said may have come across that way but the main thing that i'm trying to point out here is that if you're reading this in the greek and if you're following john's thoughts here he's saying that the same god that the word was with he is everything that that person is mm. so if the one who the word was with, we'll just say the father, because that's who it's talking about. If the father is eternal, so is the word. Right. If the father is all knowing, so is the word. If the father is all powerful, so is the word. Everything that makes God, God. Okay. Like if we were to define what is God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I would probably say knee jerk reaction with father, son, Holy spirit. But if someone says more attributes, you know, like give me some attributes. I'd say all knowing, all powerful, you know, I'd say eternal, all of those things that make mm -hmm. God, God, the word has, because the word is the son of God. God. And, um, again, we, we talked about this last podcast, but the eternal generation of the son, uh, simply states that Jesus is God because his father is God. And Jesus has always been with his father. The father has always been the father and the son has always been the son. So there's never been some point at which the father gave birth in some sense right. to the son. We're not saying that he's not he's, that kind of son. He's not that, that kind of son because he's a timeless being. Right. And so in, in some mysterious way that we can't fathom, the father always begets the son. The son is always begotten without any beginning or ending. He just is the son. Right. Just as he just is the father. Yeah. And so that's what John 1, 1 is teaching. So this is something that I, I honestly struggled with for a while. I can remember uh, running into this debate. It had to do with John MacArthur because there was one time where he held a view called incarnational sonship. Mm. And he argued that the son became the son when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Mm. Now, he said to give him due credit. He said, Jesus is fully God and he's always existed. He wasn't saying sure. that he became God right. or he was a created being. He wasn't saying anything like he that. He was just saying he was called the son. Yeah. He was saying that before he became born of the virgin, he would not be referred to as son. Uh, you would maybe refer to him as the word, perhaps. That's probably what he would say. Yeah. But he wouldn't say that Jesus was the eternal son. He wouldn't say it at some point. In his ministry. And he has since changed his mind. Sure. He has since said, no, I was wrong. As I further studied it, I believe Jesus has always been the son and he always will be the son. And I'm glad that he did change his mind. Mm. But there was a time where I thought the same way John MacArthur did. I thought, okay, well, you know, son gives me this concept of becoming, beginning. And obviously Jesus didn't become, he didn't begin to exist. He's always been. So I just, I kind of wanted to take the, the term son and apply it to his virgin birth, because that would just kind of fix the whole problem. Mm. But at the same time, I kept studying this and I ran into the Nicene view, the, the eternal sonship view. And I read some stuff by people who were defending it. And and they kept pointing me to these verses like in, in Colossians 1, 15 and in um, Hebrews 1, 2 and 1, 3, where it seems to clearly state that Jesus was the son before he was a man. Okay. Right. So before he came into the world and was incarnated, he was the son. Right. And we'll look at those references because they're part of this list. But it, it seemed to be he was son in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I can't really deny that. I can't avoid it. Uh, 
And they'd also point out simple things like John 316. It says the father sent the son. Right. He was the son before he was sent. Exactly. Uh, and so that led me back to what I believe is the plainest now. Now that I, <laughs> I've studied it more thoroughly, I think the plainest view that makes sense of the, the, the plain sense of the text, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that Jesus is eternal son. And that in John 1, 1, when it says the word was God, it's subtly indicating that. Right. Um, now, of course, if you want the, the specifics, well, you get to verse 14, verse 18, where it says the word is a son. That's what makes sense of it all. Um, why is the word exactly like God? Well, because the word is God's son. And everybody would say, OK, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, my son has all the essence of, of humanity in sure. him because he's my son and I'm a human. Okay, I begot him. Obviously, we're dealing with the timeless being uh, because in verse three of John one, it says all things were made by him. We're talking about the word still. All things were made by him and without him, apart from him, was not anything made, made. that was made. Right. And the verb here in Greek is ginomai and it, it's come to be. Okay, yep. so all things came to be through him and without him, not a single thing came to be that came to be. Right. So, I mean, it's very emphatic. So it's saying clearly that the word never came to be. He's always been right for all eternity, but um, he's still son. He's still the son. He, yeah. He's still in some way. When we refer to Jesus as, as son of God, we should automatically think by that because he's the son of God. He has everything from his father. Um, all those divine attributes because he's the son. Um and this is what I'll go ahead and read it to you because I have it in my notes here. This is what the Nicene Creed was trying to formulate, mm. just sticking with the language of Scripture. We believe mm. in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Right. One being with the father. And so if you were to ask someone who, you know, put their name to that back in the day, um, who was at the Nicene council, like, is Jesus God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But they, they would say more specifically though, he's the son of God, but those two things are not mutually exclusive to say on one hand, Jesus is God and right. Jesus is son of God. They're not mutually exclusive. They actually complement each other perfectly. If Jesus isn't the son of God, he can't be God. Right. Cause the idea is, um, no one could claim to have deity unless they were the only begotten son of God. Right. The only thing that hangs people up, I guess, is that the idea of begetting and sonship in time for created things implies a beginning, but clearly we're not talking about created beings. Right. And so any analogy that we have is going to be limited. Our human understanding of begetting. Okay. Uh, it's limited to the relationships we have in the space time world that we're part of. Mm. Um, I'll also say this. We often compare God with his father son relationship. We compare that to us, but it's really the other way around. Where do we get our idea our design of begetting. Mm. We get it from God. Yeah. He's the original. Now, since we're finite beings, naturally any resemblance between us and God is going to be limited because we're finite. So that means begetting in truth, naturally, yep. essentially, eternally is not 
something that involves a beginning right. or an ending. It only does since God's created us. So really our whole, we, we think things backwards. We think, oh, well, begetting naturally implies a beginning. Well, no, it doesn't. Mm. For all eternity, Jesus has been the only begotten son and he has always existed without a beginning. Mm. So really we've got the analogies around. We're comparing God to us when really we should be seen in light of God and who he is. Mm. And so I think that that's something really easy for us to all fall into, to kind of put God in our box so to speak. Um, but in any event, John 1, 1 standing by itself is a clear reference. English, Greek, whatever language you use properly translated, Jesus is God. Uh, now at the very end of John, we'll look at the end of John. We have another verse, which is perfect because it comes at the very end. Right. And so John opens up the book saying, Jesus is God. I'm going to prove it to you. Yeah. And so he gives us all these signs. Right. And then you get to the end and we have this verse, which John said, oh, by the way, you know that thing I've been trying to prove to you the whole time? I'm reminding of you right here. Yeah. Uh, John 20, 28. So Jesus, he appears to Thomas and Thomas in verse 28, he answered and said unto him, unto Jesus, my Lord and my, my God. God. And if anybody's bothered. By the idea of in John 1, 1, the definite article being absent. Okay. I tried to explain the Greek behind that, but let's say you're still confused on that. And you just desperately want a reference in the New Testament where Jesus is called the God. You have it right here. Yeah. In the Greek, it's literally the Lord of me, the God of me. It's not just a God. He's yeah, the, the God. God. And some people say, oh, so what Jehovah's Witnesses will do, oh, this is Thomas. He's, he's speaking to the father. It's like a exclamation, like, you know, oh my God. Okay. First off, that's not something that Jews did. Okay. It's anachronistic to think that they would mm. exclaim something like that. They were very, very careful. Okay. About mm. how they address God. They didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. That's the first observation. But the second thing is it says Thomas answered and said to him, mm -hmm. he's clearly addressing someone. He's addressing Jesus. And how does he address him? No, my Lord and my God. And so I don't think you can worm your way out of that one. Um, mm. Though a lot of cults, they do because they recognize the strength of these. And, and what really impresses me uh, as I've investigated, you know, the claims of cults is just let the word of God speak for itself. Don't be scared. Okay. Uh, just let God's word speak for itself. And it will demonstrate the deity of Christ so easily. Um, a lot of times it's simply people aren't aware of these verses. Mm -hmm. They're not prepared to give an answer because they haven't become familiar enough with the Bible. Right. But uh, once you see this again and again and again, you recognize the futility of trying to avoid the, the, the straightforward understanding of the text. Because how can they, with all these references that we've gone through so far and all the ones we're going to continue to go through, how can they get rid of all of them? Mm. How can they explain them all away? How can they explain away the equality of the son with the father? How can they explain the fact that he creates and sustain, sustains creation? How can they explain the fact that, you know, he has no beginning or no end, alpha and omega, that he's worthy of worship? You can't explain it all away. Right. You know, there might be one or two places where it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not the best proof of what I'm trying to you know, prove to you. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when you take all this, you can't explain it all the right. way. Exactly. The cumulative case is very powerful. Uh, now, Acts 20, 28, yeah. uh, flip over to the book of Acts. This one, uh, I still consider it a, a direct attribute um, or a, a direct attribution of deity to Christ, but uh, it doesn't literally say he is God. 
but uh, it is by implication in Acts 20, 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. By the way, um, that's the definite article there. The church mm. of the God, right? Which he hath purchased with his own oh, blood. Wow. Now, unless you believe that God became a man as Christians believe and as the new Testament teaches, this can't be made sense of, right? I mean, you have to say God became a man in order to believe this because God doesn't have blood. He's a spirit, exactly. but if he became a man, then he can shed his own blood. Well, who would be God in the flesh? Jesus, Jesus, the one in question, the one we're talking yes. about. Okay. So this is one that's also been a battleground over the years. Uh, some would say, um, you know, maybe his own means his own son, but it doesn't say that it could very easily say that it says his own blood, not his own son. Right. Okay. And so this is talking about God giving himself up, up. and uh, shedding his blood to purchase the church of God. Um, and so clearly that's a reference to Christ as God there. The God, in fact, um, Colossians two, nine, this says that Jesus has the divine nature. Okay, or the divine essence. It's kind of technical language. Um, in Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, speaking of Christ, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. The word Godhead in Greek is uh, theotes. Right. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's distinguished from another term. It looks very, very similar. Um Theotes means the divine essence. The other term that's similar and is used in Romans 1 um, means uh, divine likeness, like, you know, divinity, similar to God, resembling God. But sure. theotes doesn't mean resembling God. Theotes means the very essence of God. So this is referring to the divine nature. That's how we would tend to refer to it um, as Christians in English, the divine nature, but theotes is the reference here. So it says all the fullness of the theotes. He's not just partially God, somewhat God, not half God, half man. He's fully God. And that, that Godness, that word I think fits the Godness. It dwelt in him bodily. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is all of what God is because he's God's son. Uh, Philippians 2, 6. We've already looked at that one, but since it's been a little bit, uh, we'll go ahead and, and look at it again. Uh, this clearly... Let me run through my Bible, buddy. Yeah, I know. I'm giving you, giving you a, a workout here. Philippians 2, 6. It says he is in the form of God, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he's in the form of God. And the word here in Greek is morphe. Uh, morphe theu is the Greek expression and morphe means more than just appearance. It means essence that is expressing itself. So in heaven, Jesus in all of his glory, he has the glory that pertains to his Godhead. Mm -hmm. um, he, he has the glory of God because he is God. You know, I, I have no doubt that visibly speaking in heaven, the glory of God is differentiating or itself from all the other different glories. You got an angel over here. They might shine brighter than that angel over there. Mm -hmm. The saint might shine brighter than that saint. I think there is something to that. The Bible speaks of rewards I mean, even in heaven. Moses glowed, right? Even Moses glowed. Like on earth, you know, we have one shining brighter than the other, right? So yep. in heaven, God's glory is obviously set apart because he is worthy of all glory. And that is based on who he is. He is God. And so he has God's glory. That's what morphe means. 
It's mm-hmm. the essence of God manifesting itself in that glory, that heavenly glory. Jesus has that. And that's because he is very mm. God, a very God, just as the Nicene Creed teaches. Uh, Romans 9, 5. This is another reference. Paul, he's full of references. If you oh, just yeah. read his writings, uh, Romans 9, 5, he's talking about the Jews and he says, whose are the fathers? So in reference to the Jews, uh, they have the fathers. They have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth. Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So he, he automatically is, is setting us up for some really big declaration because he's saying Christ, according to the flesh, is descendant of the fathers. But, uh, but what about his spirit? Are yeah. You... Sorry. Uh, the MEV says. Go um, ahead. It says, to whom belong the patriarchs mm-hmm. and from whom, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is overall God forever blessed. Yes. Amen. Yes. And, and the KJV is basically the same. It's slight like the the way it's phrased is a little different, but it's saying sure. the same thing. It same says thing. Yep. Uh, of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed yes. forever. Yep. So, yeah. So the when the KJV translators, when they made this, they intended um, to bring across the fact that Jesus is God. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so this is clearly differentiating the two natures of Christ. Yep. He is according to the flesh descendants of the patriarchs. Yep. Okay. But on the other hand, he is, God overall yes. blessed forever. Yes. It's like uh, John. It's a perfect example. I think John, when he talks about Jesus, he's like, he's coming after me. Okay. Yeah, 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 so he yeah. hasn't showed up yet. Yeah. Okay. He's a man, yeah. you know, but he's preferred before me. Okay. Yeah. He, he deserves more attention and more praise and honor and glory and all that because he was before me. Right. So it's like, technically he's coming after me. Like he was, you know, born after me and he's going to arrive on the scene after me. So in a sense he's after, but really he's before. He's before me. John the Baptist. John the Baptist said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, John the Baptist. I think it's John 115 is that reference. And so he says that twice that he's coming after me, but he's before me. Yes. And so this is basically saying the same thing. So yeah, technically he comes from the fathers, but don't let that confuse you. He's overall. That's right. He's before all. God bless forever. And so that's another reference to Jesus being God. Um, In Hebrews 1.8, we have another clear reference to Jesus being God because it states it explicitly. Again, there are a number of verses that outrightly say Jesus is God. Uh, Hebrews 1.8 is one of them. Uh, Even Unitarians, it's interesting. uh, There's an article online, a biblical Unitarian, I think. uh, Even he admits that, yes, it's saying Jesus is God here, but it doesn't mean he's God. (laughs) So it's saying he's God, but God here doesn't mean God in that sense. It means God in like, oh, he's a hero. He's powerful. That sort of sense. No, not at all. (laughs) In Hebrews 1.8, it says, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who's saying this? The father is saying to his son, the fa- if you don't believe me, believe the father. The father says unto the son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Mm. So this isn't talking about some hero like Gideon or Manoah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is talking about the king who sits on a throne and he's enthroned for how long? Forever. Yep. So in that context, it's indisputable. This is referring to Jesus as God in the fullest sense of the term. And again, context, 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 uh, go back to verse number two, 
God in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Sounds like something God does, right? Yeah. And and when you go to uh, Hebrews 11.3, again, just cross-referencing all over, and you don't have to turn here if you don't want, but Hebrews 11.3, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. But in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, All things were made by God, God, the Son, by the Son, through the Son. All the worlds were made. And it says by the word of the son in verse three, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, whose power, his power. So in this context, it's impossible not to see the deity of Christ shine through in those verses, but especially in verse eight. Um, Hebrews one, I mean, one through, I mean, I just started reading some of this and the whole thing saying Jesus it's is God. full of landmines. Yeah. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you just right. got to avoid Hebrews yeah. one or just the whole thing. Just tear it out. Look at verse 10. Yeah. Thou Lord. He is again, father speaking of the son, thou Lord in the beginning has laid the foundations of the yep. earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest and they shall all wax old as doth the garment as a vesture Shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed, mm. but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I don't think you can get clearer than that. I don't think you can get clearer than that, but we're going to show some even more uh, references here in chapter three, verse number. Well, we'll go back to verse number two because we have to read the context here. So where are we? Sorry, Hebrew? Uh, Hebrew is still. Three. We'll go to verse uh, two of chapter three. Okay. Chapter three, verse two. Got it. So verse one says Christ Jesus to the very end, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house for yeah. every house is builded by some man. Okay. But he that built all things is God. So it says the builder has more glory Okay. Yeah. Then the house or the servants who are in the house, the one who builds it has the chief glory. It's saying that Jesus has more glory than Moses because Moses is a servant in the house. Right. But Jesus is the one who built the house. Exactly. And then in verse four, it clearly says every house is built by someone, but he that built all things is God. Okay. So this is one of the, the references the church fathers love to use in their debates with the Arians, because they would say here, the whole argument turns on the idea that Jesus is God. The whole mm. argument does because he's talking about the builder of all things. Who's the builder of all things? God. Okay. Moses, he is part of the house. He's part of creation in a more narrow sense. Mm -hmm. He's part of the old Testament economy. You know, he's part of the household of God as a believer, as a servant. Okay. Jesus rises above all of that. He rises above the house uh, of that religious observation. He rises above the house of creation because he's the builder of all things. Mm. And so in verse four, the reference to um, God is a reference to Christ. The whole argument depends upon it. It's not talking about the father right here. Right. It's talking about Jesus is the builder Absolutely. and the builder of all things is God. Right. And so I love this one. It's one of my favorites because it, it also pushes Jesus back into the old Testament, the house that Moses was serving in Jesus built it. Right. So for a person that doesn't believe in the preexistence of Jesus, you got a problem. 
Right. Because it's putting Jesus back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the one that started things. The person who delivered the law to Moses, who established that whole household, gave the instructions of the tabernacle yeah. and filled the tabernacle. Yeah. Jesus did. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. First Timothy 3.16. This one you will not find. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I don't want to get into the Bible translation issue. But if you don't have a Texas Receptus based Bible, you will not have this verse. Which is kind of sad because it's one of the best verses uh, in a debate about the deity of Christ. First um, Timothy 3.16. It is in the majority of manuscripts and it's in the Texas Receptus. So you'll find it in the New King James, MEV, KJV. Okay. Um, it's part of somewhat of a creed. Paul in first Timothy three sixteen says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Let's just stop right there for a second. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He's saying what I'm about to describe to you without any debate, without any contrary or a controversy is a great mystery. This is a confusing thing. It's a mystery. That's something that I like to point out to people when I share this verse, because it's about to say this. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. That is a reference to Jesus. No one denies that. And it says the person in view is God manifest in the flesh. Yeah. And Paul is saying without controversy, great is the mystery. It's great in that it's glorious, but it's great in that it is a great mystery. I mean, the words God was manifest in the flesh. It's the greatest mystery in, in human history. You Or you at least could put it up there with the mystery of God existing for eternity. Mm. God creating all of creation out of nothing by his sheer will. Yeah. You know, God's foreknowledge and free will going together. All these mysteries, you put them up there. You have to put this one up there. The incarnation of God, God being manifest in the flesh. Um, Most modern translations have like he is manifest in the flesh. And that's based on (coughs) the uh, critical text. So a text that has minority support. um, I I don't see why one would accept that uh, other than you just assume, well, it just would be too good to be true to have a reference like this mm. in the New Testament. I feel like there are some people who do that. They they say, well, it's just too good to be true. Yeah, it can't be that. It just can't be that obvious. God was manifest in the flesh. I mean, how much clearer can you be? Well, that that's only based on unbelief really exactly that that the bible doesn't actually teach the incarnation of god if the bible does teach that if you're a christian and you believe it then why should you be surprised when you see a reference like this in first right. timothy three sixteen? but they have this philosophy it's a minimalist philosophy where you know you have to accept the text that's the less uh less theological than the other texts uh, the text that doesn't um, in their minds reflect any debate that came later. So what they try to do honestly is come up with this text that is really, they'll admit it. It's almost theologically deficient, right? You know, they'll, they'll always side with the reference that's less in favor of the deity of Christ, even people who believe in it. Right now they can't avoid it with John one, one John one, one. It's like the, the manuscript evidence is across the board. It's you can't really avoid it. It's, Clearly a reference to Jesus being God. Sure. So these are people who are not denying the deity of Christ. Don't get me wrong. They'll say we have other references, but when it comes to this, they'll say, well, since there are variants, we're just going to err on the side of the most bare bones doctrine 
uh, you know, they, they'll just, they'll say, we're going to have that as our new Testament, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm like, what? Yeah. Why? I don't, why? Why? Why, why would you assume what, what basis do you have for the assumption? Right. That the new Testament is going to be bare theologically. Cause that's basically what but, I've heard. I've yeah, heard that. That that's, doesn't make any sense. Why? <laughs> yeah. So they'll say, oh, well, we believe the deity of Christ is there, but we don't think that like all these references that you're reading are teaching the deity of Christ. So they'll say that there's a whole lot less about the deity of Christ. They'll say it's there, but it's not there as much. It's not, not that one. It's no. not there as much as what you say it is. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, it's like Why you're shooting yourself you? in the foot. Right. You have the majority text here. You know, you, you yeah. have and you have, of course, the variants are easily explained. Yeah. By the unseals or the all caps manuscripts that they used, um, they would often shorten words like they would take the word theos and they would just have the, the theta and the sigma. They just take those two letters uh, and they'd often draw a line over it, which mm. would mean that, OK, this is actually an expanded word. You know which one we're talking about. This yeah. is theos. This is God, you know, yeah, yeah. and everybody knew what it was. Well, over time, sometimes uh, the uh, that line at the top. We faded and and since a lot of the letters look very similar, you know, some would say that's how the variant appeared. Well, that makes sense. And it makes sense that over time, you know, faded manuscript would lead to a transmission sure. error. But uh as far as early support, we got it. As far as majority support, we got it. We have obviously all these other references elsewhere. But um uh I I just don't understand textual critics that approach the Bible as just any other book. You can't do that. Mm. I mean, you're honestly checking your faith at the door when you're doing textual criticism Mm. because they think, Oh, well we have to be biased or unbiased. We have to be neutral. And I can't, I can't be because I believe the Bible. Sure. Like I can't treat the Bible as another book. I can't treat the Bible, you know, like the histories of Herodotus, Socrates, (laughs) Socrates. Like I have to treat the Bible as God's word. Um, And so Textual critics, they're honestly, they're, they're like split personality disorder, you know, in church there, we believe this, but then when they do their job, their textual critical job, they have to treat the Bible just like it's any other book. And, uh, who's that guy I'm thinking of? He's here in, in Georgia. Um, oh, Dr. Who? No. Um, oh, what's that guy? Yeah. Great stuff. And he's just gone off the deep end. Anyways, I can't think of his name. There's, there's a, there's a lot of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's a but lot there's of a doctor. Them. I forgot. But um, I talked to him anyways. And so, Keep yeah, th- there are, there are honestly a lot of people who, good people who disagree with me on this, but I just, and I, I tell people this all the time who I talk to, cause I got a lot of friends and they'll ask me what I think about it. And, um, I'll say, I've prayed about it. I've prayed about it. And honestly, I think that most of the issues that have come up in my life controversial you know doctrine theology i've just prayed about it because i really do believe that the god of the bible was real and you know he saved me from my sins and he's you know in in me and with me wherever i go and and so when it comes to like the bible's text i just pray about it and the way that i went about and the way i think textual critics go about handling the bible it just seems irreverent to me and I just, I'm full of conviction. Like the Bible, God's word deserves more. Sure. When we approach it. We can't just say, oh, well, I think that this variant's better than that variant. We have to be held accountable. We're not holding the Bible accountable to us. We're accountable to the Bible. So what philosophy of the text holds you accountable to the Bible? It's one where the text is settled and you have no say over it. 
You have no say over what the Bible is saying. It's already settled. And the only philosophy that, as I discovered and looked at all the options and weighed those options, the only philosophy that says the text is settled is really the Texas Receptus philosophy. Mm. The criti- critical text is always changing. I mean, they're coming out with new editions every single year. They're right. even starting to apply computer, you know, technology to try to sort through variants and all that. Sure. <clears throat> Using computers to help us out. Everybody's into AI too. And yeah. probably use AI to end up trying to reconstruct the text if they haven't already. Um, so you have a constantly shifting text with, with them. But that makes the Bible under you. You're the authority. You're over it. But if you say, no, listen, I believe that God is not a God of confusion. The word that is his word, the true word, is what he has had in the midst of his church right. from the very beginning through the Middle Ages. It's what was taken to the printing press. It's what fired the Reformation. It's what carried the worldwide mission movement. Mm. And what text is described that way? From the beginning, through the Middle Ages, to the Reformation, to the mission field. Like what text? The TR, the Texas Receptus. And so anyways, again, not to go off on that tangent, but uh, it necessarily comes up when you talk about 1 Timothy 3.16. Sure. Because it is one of those references that's debated. Um, but even if you don't have that one, I'm going to use it. It's God's word. Yeah. I'm going to use it without any shame. But yeah. um, if you were hypothetically to not use that, you still have so many others. Now, I'm going to stop there because there are one, two, three more that I think should be used sure. as evidence for the deity of Christ. But again, it's not really a text issue here. It's a translation issue. It's like, should we translate it this way or that way? All the other ones are clear as day. Um, First Timothy three 16 is clear. Also, as long as you have the right text, but Titus two 13, second Peter one, one and first John five 20. The texts are in agreement. There's no dispute about that. It's really just about how you translate the Greek. So we'll look at that next time. And I know it's a lot, but hopefully you got something out of it and it was a blessing to you. Good stuff.